Hello, and welcome to the Film Jerk Podcast. I'm your host, Edward Havens. This is our third and final episode about the 1980s production and distribution company, Empire Pictures. Last week's episode covered the films Empire would distribute in 1988 and 1989, plus all their direct-to-video titles, and what happened to the company as a producer and a distributor. This week, we'll take a look at the unrealized Empire Pictures projects. And before I get to this episode, I have to mention a couple of missed credits in the previous episode. When discussing the movie Arena, I forgot to mention the name of the director, Peter Manugian. And when discussing a film directed by Michael Miner, I forgot to mention the name of the film, Deadly Weapon. And with those corrections out of the way, let's get started on this episode. As I partially explained last week, most of the movies Empire Pictures would make were meant to capitalize on the ever-growing home video market and its insatiable need for more and more titles. What I saved for this episode was that back in the mid-80s, a movie having a theatrical release was a key factor in getting the mom-and-pop video stores that dominated the market at the time to set themselves apart from the cheapy knockoffs. As a 16-year-old home video clerk at Aptos Home Video in suburban Santa Cruz in 1984, I would devour the weekly flyers and mailers sent to the store and try and get my bosses to buy specific movies. Invariably, the movies that stated they were recent theatrical releases would be the ones they'd buy a copy of to try, even if it was a movie that they had never heard of. So even if a movie only got released for one week at one drive-in theater in Georgia, it wouldn't exactly be a lie to say that the movie got a theatrical release. Empire was trying to replicate the glory days of a company like American International Pictures and planned a whole series of low-budget exploitation pictures, often with salacious titles and titillating graphics that were meant to send foreign distributors into a buying frenzy. All of the titles I'm about to talk about were attempted to be sold at various world film markets between 1984 and 1988 that never came to be. The jumping off point for this list were the advertisements Empire Pictures would place in the issues of the industry trade papers Variety and The Hollywood Reporter that coincided with a variety of international film markets where producers and distributors from around the world would get together to buy and sell movies for individual countries or entire continents, as the case may be. Some films would be fully completed and would only need to be dubbed or subtitled for each market, and some films were not films yet, but ideas for movies that producers hoped to pre-sell to enough territories that they could then afford to make the movie. Now, a few of these movies would later get produced by band at Full Moon Pictures, but for the purposes of this episode, we're going to consider them unmade, since they were often reworked or completely changed from what was planned at Empire. And one last interjection before we get started. If you go to this podcast's episode page at filmjerk.com, you can see a short video of me with some of the issues of Variety's Film Market Special Editions, showing off some of the ads that I will be describing on this episode. The concepts we are going to discuss tonight would come from various Empire Picture ad spreads in the so-called Industry Bibles, Variety, and Hollywood Reporter between 1984 and 1988. 
Since none of these movies would actually get made, we cannot go chronologically. So we're going to list them off as best as we can alphabetically, starting with a movie idea called Alter Ego. This was first pitched at the October 1985 MyFed Film Market, with reanimators Brian Usna set to produce this sci-fi movie, written by Robert Gothels, from an idea by Kim Deitch. The key art shows a guy wearing shades who suspiciously looks like Peter Weller, holding an X-Acto knife against a horde of little dragon-looking things. With the tagline, The Intergalactic Theater of Terror is about to be cancelled, floating over his head. A similar ad would run in the 1986 American film market issue of Variety, but now the film had a director attached, Peter Manugian, a star in the Dungeon Master's Jeffrey Byron, and new writers in Danny Bilson and Paul DeMeo. It's possible Alter Ego morphed into the 1989 Peter Manugian sci-fi action film Arena, which was also written by Bilson and DeMeo, but since the Writers Guild only gave credit to those two and nothing to Gothels or Deech, I'm suspecting that, like how the Laser Blast sequel morphed into Deadly Weapon, which we discussed last episode, Alter Ego was abandoned, and the writers would rework the material into something distinctly different enough that giving any credit to the original writers made the point moot. Empire made three movies with Halloween financier and executive producer Erwin Yablons, Arena, Buy and Sell, and Prison. But there'd be a few others that almost got made, but didn't for whatever reason. In the trades for the October 1986 MyFed film market, several new collaborations between Empire and Yablons were announced. One of those movies was going to be a new Larry Cohen movie called Apparatus, a horrifying realistic drama in which the government is able to control the proletariat through apparatuses attached to their bodies. Production was set to begin in January of 1988. I can't find much about what Arsenal, first announced in 1985, would have been about, but Band would spend a couple of years trying to get it financed. The promotional poster created for it shows an island with a whole mess of weapons firing out at some unseen nemesis, with the tagline, The Monumental War Machine, at the top of the poster. There's no director listed, only a writer, Charlie Dolan, a cinematographer, and an associate producer. One of the big movie trends of the 1980s were sword and sorcery films. There were more than 40 of them that decade, like Barbarian Queen and Clash of the Titans and Dragon Slayer, Excalibur, Ladyhawk, Legend, and of course the two Conan movies starring Arnold Schwarzenegger. In 1986, Empire would try to enter the genre with Barbarian Women. Maybe the Empire office at the film market had more information about the film, but those materials are long gone. All we have is some rather good key art in which a group of scantily clad barbarian women, one on horse, attacking some kind of very large horned monster. First pitched in 1986 as Battle Bots, and later in 1987 as Murder Cycle, this futuristic action movie was supposed to be written and directed by Michael Miner, the co-creator of Robocop and the writer-director of the Empire film Deadly Weapon. This movie, about soldiers fighting a robotic alien, 
would eventually get made by bands Full Moon Pictures as Murder Cycle in 1999. Minor would not be credited for his original work on the project. Did you know Arnold Schwarzenegger was a big fan of Reanimator? He was. And he would start to develop a movie called Berserker, the story of a bodybuilder who abuses steroids and becomes a mutant in 1986. Stuart Gordon and Dennis Paoli, who wrote the adaptations for Reanimator and From Beyond, would work on the screenplay with Schwarzenegger, which Empire would sell with the tagline, He's more powerful than humanly possible, and becoming more inhuman with each blow. We mentioned Bimbo Barbecue during our previous episode, when the movie was teased at the end of Assault of the Killer Bimbos. At the March 1988 American film market, there would be a full-page ad for the sequel, featuring the three stars of Killer Bimbos riding atop a hairbrush, a tube of lipstick, and a can of hairspray, with a tagline reading, Their Second Full Frontal Assault. Like the first film, Ted Nicolau would write the script and Anita Rosenberg would direct. The ad even promised that principal photography would begin that June. It wouldn't begin that June or the following June, or any time after that. Another film being sold without a director or a writer credited was Bloodless. Just a poster of two people standing in front of an entrance to some kind of ancient temple, with a tagline that read, Stone into flesh, innocence into fear, day into nightmare, in a place called Monster Park. Bloodless was supposed to go into production, in February of 1988. Stuart Gordon was one of horror cinema's brightest stars in the 1980s, thanks to his combined one-two-three punch of Reanimator, From Beyond, and Dolls, all of which we discussed in our previous episodes. Just before the MyFed film marking in October 1986, Empire Pictures would take out a number of pages to announce the movies they planned on making during the coming year in the hopes that they could sell enough global territories to be able to finance the productions of the film. Six titles associated with Stuart Gordon would be advertised, including From Beyond and Dolls, which had been produced but not yet released, Robojocks, which was at $7 million the highest budgeted movie Empire would make, which was scheduled to begin production in Rome the following January. Two other titles announced were Berserker, which we just spoke about a moment ago, and another return to H.B. Lovecraft, this time with Lurking Fear, which we'll talk about in a moment. But the most interesting film of the proposed Empire-Gordon pairings was a cinematic adaptation of a stage play Gordon helped to conceive and direct for his Chicago-based organic theater company in 1974. Bloody Bess was partially based on the legends of Lady Pirates and Bonnie and Mary Reed, and would tell the story of Elizabeth Presterby, the daughter of an English governor of Tobago, who was imprisoned and held for ransom by a group of pirates, until she discovers her rescuers are even more corrupt than her captors, a revelation that transforms her into a ruthless spitfire bent on revenge. Barbara Crampton, who had also been featured in Gordon's Reanimator and From Beyond, was scheduled to play the titular character. The sole images that exist for the project are two pictures of Miss Crampton on what's supposed to look like a pirate ship, although it's just a few ropes behind a scrim made up to look like another ship nearby. 
In one photo, Miss Crampton is holding a sword in one hand at her hip, while her other hand is holding one of the ropes. There's a musket tucked into her belt, and she's wearing a clean white shirt with a black open vest. In the second photo, the sword is raised over her head while she holds the musket in her other hand. The vest is gone, and the shirt is bloodied in spots. The backdrop has changed from a soft purple, as if night had fallen, to a blood-red sky with what's supposed to look like a fireball at the bow of the other ship. You can find these two test images of Miss Crampton as bloody best on this podcast episode's page at filmjerk.com. Jeffrey Combs, who also starred with Crampton in Reanimator and From Beyond, was also scheduled to star in Bloody Bess, but alas, the film would apparently not get enough pre-sales to become a financially viable production, thanks in no small part to the then very recent global failure earlier in the year of Roman Polanski's Pirates. You can also go to this podcast episode page to find a link to a 33-minute black-and-white video of a portion of that original 1974 Chicago stage production, as well as a message from Mr. Gordon himself asking for a DVD copy of the footage. In 1986, Empire would pitch a movie about a miniature city in a glass bottle, called The Bottled City of Shandar. The film would finally get made in 1988 as The Shrunken City, directed by Ted Nicolau. Is it real? Or is it Cassex? asked the 1985 teaser ad, which featured a scantily clad apparition behind a young man with electrodes from a VCR hooked up to his temples. The screenplay was written by then-unknown Gregory Wyden, who would become famous a year later for a screenplay he had written while still an undergraduate film student at UCLA, Highlander. Wyden would also write the screenplay for the 1991 Ron Howard film Backdraft based on his own experiences as a firefighter while going to UCLA. An Empire trade ad in 1987 announced a movie called The Colony, with no tagline and no credits. The key art featured a group of men in suits and women in evening wear clapping as they surround another woman who is being burned alive at a stake. That's all we'd ever see or hear about it. Another one of the collaborations announced between Empire Films and Frankie Blondes in the October 1986 MyFed Film Market ads is almost always missed by people who are talking about Empire Pictures because it's literally in very small print at the bottom corner of one of the pages that's also announcing several other titles. It simply reads, Empire Entertainment and Frankie Blondes beginning an association which will also include Michael Crichton's bestseller, Congo. First appearing in print in 1985, the ad for Crime Lord appeared to be some kind of Prohibition-era saga. The characters on the key art are dressed in 30s-era clothing. A car smashed up in front of Radio City Music Hall looks like it could be a mid-30s Studebaker Land Cruiser or Cadillac LaSalle. And the lead character is holding a Thompson machine gun, better known as a Tommy gun, the weapon which achieved a sort of immortality when they were used in the infamous 1929 St. Valentine's Day Massacre in Chicago. But the next time Empire tried to sell the film the following year, the Tommy gun was gone and replaced with a smaller handgun, 
with a very large laser scope atop it, and the cars are very much mid-80s Audis and BMWs, while the buildings behind our anti-hero, with him in front of the Brooklyn Bridge, are more modern skyscrapers, although the World Trade Center Twin Towers are obscured by his personage. Either way, the film may have gone, Band would use the same tagline to try to sell it. The violent rise and fall of a powerful and corrupt man. Another movie announced at the March 1988 American film market, weeks before the collapse of the company, was a sequel to Creepazoids, which was scheduled to be written and directed by the original film's David Decotau. If it had been made, Decapitron would have been by far Empire's most expensive movie. Empire would first pitch this at the Cannes film market in May 1986, and Band would do something he hadn't done before at any other film market. Splurge on a full-color, glossy paper, eight-page insert, where the average Empire movie could cost between $75,000 and $2 million to make, Decapitron was expected to be a 10 to $15 million special effects extravaganza. Eliminators director Peter Manugian and writers Danny Bilson and Paul DeMeo were going to team up to make, for all intent and purpose, a bigger version of Eliminators. But instead of a half-man, half-android at the center of the story, Decapitron would have featured a full-on robot hero with interchangeable heads that would serve different needs. As shown in the ad, there was a surveillance head, an extremely sophisticated information-gathering and observation device, an Omnitech head, an analyzing unit useful for biochemical breakdowns, medical diagnoses, and crime detection, a humanoid head to simulate the appearance of a Caucasian human male in his mid-30s, a warhead with advanced firepower, and finally, a doomsday head in case of a true emergency. In the movie, the Decapitron and his wisecracking preteen sidekick would go into a quarantine city and try to help the survivors of a biological disaster while dealing with the evil gang that has taken over the city after the plague. At the October 1987 MyFed Film Market, it was announced that the film would begin production in July of 1988. Although the movie would never get made, a character called Decapitron that is markedly different from the one illustrated in, the, in those glossy trade paper ads would eventually show up in the fourth part of Band's Puppet Master series of films at Full Moon in 1993 and again in Part 5 the following year. The Dirty Filthy Slime was a sci-fi horror concept pitched around the time of Chuck Russell's remake of The Blob which looked exactly like the blob, except the slime was green instead of the blob's red. Writer Kenneth J. Hall was supposed to be the writer for this film, but he would tell an interviewer years later that because of the collapse of the company around the same time, he never got the chance to write a synopsis for the film, let alone an actual screenplay. At the October 1986 MyFed Film Market, Empire would also announce two films that they were going to make with the legendary Jack Kirby. The first, Dr. Mortalis, looked a lot like Dr. Strange, and the storyline sounded like it could have come out of the Strange universe. The synopsis for the film would tell the reader about an all-powerful wizard who was the leader of a secret sect of sorcerers known as the Dark Order. 
The source of his and the Dark Order's powers were the scrolls of an ancient civilization who lived by the code of magic. The Bible of Sorcery, the scrolls could invest their owners with limitless powers over other sorcerers. Many elements from the Dr. Mortalis script, which would have led into a comic book series had the movie been made, were later used in the 1992 full moon movie Dr. Mordred, starring reanimators Jeffrey Combs. There was a very short period where director Stuart Gordon was interested in directing a Dolls 2. The story would have followed two of the surviving characters back to America, where things would start to get back to normal in their lives until one of them received a special delivery of a box containing the toy makers as dolls. The collapse of Empire Pictures and Band making the Puppet Master movies first with David Schmoller would be the end of that. Little is known about Dream Invaders, which was pitched at the October 1987 MyFed film market, with a promised production start date of January 1988. The key art for the movie made it look like a nightmare on Elm Street ripoff. This entry, for a potential movie called Dreams in the Witch House, comes not from one of the many Empire Picture ads where the vast majority of this episode comes from, but from the Stuart Gordon and Brian Usna commentary track recorded for From Beyond. During that commentary, they mentioned this H.P. Lovecraft story, where a graduate student rents a cursed room in a boarding house once owned by a 17th century witch, and another one, which we'll cover later in this episode, that were originally planned to be made after Reanimator. Gordon would eventually make Dreams in the Witch House in 2005 as the second episode of the Showtime anthology horror series, Masters of Horror. Entangled was first announced at the 1987 MyFed film market and would have been based on a 1983 pulp novel by Jeffrey Sager and Paul Jason. Entangled was sold as a gripping thriller that would bring suspenseful storytelling to a new shock level. As a young woman's dream of happiness on New York's Upper East Side turns into a nightmare. This would have been another of Empire's collaborations with producer Frank Yablons. First pitched at the May 1987 Cannes Film Festival, the key art for Fiends shows a woman in a negligee trapped in a spider's web, screaming as three legs from a very large spider start to close in on her. A pair of eyes lurks in the background as the tagline asks, What are friends for if you can't use them? The ad stated the film was scheduled to begin shooting two months later in July 1987, but at the time there was no writer, no producer, and no director credited. At one point, Empire was scheduled to team with Toby Hooper to make two movies, the second of which announced in March 1988, would have been a $6 million adaptation of the Howling's author Gary Brandner's just-published novel Floater, in which three high school student friends must reunite 20 years after graduation to deal with the aftermath of a prank in their youth that went horribly wrong. The secret of success in movies is getting in bed with all the right people, the tagline for Home for the Stars promised in March 1988. Band's filmmaker father Albert 
would have been the writer, producer, and director of this sex farce that probably would have not looked that good then and definitely would be uncomfortable today. Hotel Dick was another March 1988 American film market announcement, what would have been another collaboration with producer Erwin Yablons. No director or writer was listed. The key art was a dead body being covered by a white sheet with a toe tag that simply read, Do Not Disturb, and a log line stating that the film would be a crazy comedy about a man in a hotel who are going to make history or go down trying. Remember on our previous episode, we mentioned how David Schmoller's Catacombs had the unenviable honor of being the last Empire picture to be completed? Catacombs was actually a compromise, as Huntress was the movie Schmoller was supposed to make in the fall of 1987. Huntress would have followed a bounty hunter who arrives in a small mining town after tracking a man he suspects to be a werewolf who has been killing people all across the area. Once in town, the bounty hunter must compete for the $100,000 price on the werewolf's head with a local bully as he also starts a fall for a local woman with a horrific secret. The promo artwork for the movie shows a naked woman with just enough shadows covering her breasts and lower regions with a wolf head bearing its fangs and a tagline reading, Trapped by the Magic, Transformed by the Night. You can see a copy of the artwork for Huntress on our website at filmdrick.com. A brief description would also be featured with the artwork. Bewitched, she became a carnal creation of the night. Bedeviled, she is the dark side of every man's fantasy. Be warned, her hunt has only just begun. Here is the bizarre, erotic thriller about a female werewolf looking for the ultimate sexual experience, driven beyond death and desire. Ron Underwood, who would go on to write the screenplays for Tremors and City Slickers, had been Schmoller's first assistant director on the 1979 horror film Tourist Trap and was supposed to be an associate producer on this film, as he had been on Schmoller's Crawl Space. Why he didn't work on Catacombs when it moved forward and said, I do not know. Charles Band's Full Moon Pictures would eventually make Huntress in 1995, but without Schmoller as the writer or director, or any credit for his previous work. A lot of online sources put the would-be Ted Nicolau action comedy I Eat Cannibals as a movie first pitched in 1980, but this just wouldn't be possible since Ban hadn't started Empire Pictures until 1983 and Nicolau wouldn't get his start in the film industry until 1984. And it's likely that Nicolau was a fan of Toto Coleo's 1983 minor new wave hit song I Eat Cannibals and liked the title. Band would first pitch this to potential buyers at the American film market in March 1986 with some crappy-looking key art with a guy who looks like he's cosplaying a Street Fighter character holding a dead body over one shoulder and a lit stick of dynamite in his opposite hand with a tagline reading, The only victim of a cannibal slaughter to ever survive and return above the key art. And a second tagline 
the most ferocious story of revenge ever filmed, below the title art under the picture. It's not clear if the movie was meant to be a comedy at this point, but when Band tried to sell the concept again at a later film market, the new key art was much more in line with what one might expect from a comedy film, feeling like a cross between a Schwarzenegger movie and Animal House. And the tagline was changed to The Macho Maniacs of Mercenary You, Hard as Nails, Mean as Snakes, Dumb as Apes. Inhuman was another movie from the Empire Think Tank circa October 1986 that tried to sell people only on a poster concept of a beautiful blonde woman who is turning into a vicious snake-like creature, starting at her chest with her breasts becoming the eyes of the inhuman creature. In October 1987, Empire would announce a film called Intruder, which would have been their first collaboration with famed horror director Toby Hooper. What would Intruder have been about? I have no clue. The ad did not feature any key art or tagline or logline about the movie, only a flowery description of Hooper's achievements in filmmaking and a note that he was one of the few filmmakers who had not only achieved critical and audience recognition, but whose works had also been displayed at New York's Museum of Modern Art. Journey Through the Dark Zone was one of several films written by Danny Bilson and Paul DeMeo for Empire. At the October 1984 MyFed film market, Charles Band was listed as the director-to-be, but at the October 1986 MyFed film market, Bilson would be listed as the director-to-be. At the October 1987 MyFed film market, Empire announced a May 1988 production start date, but the collapse of the company would keep the film from getting made. Two different taglines were used to sell the film. In 1984, it would read The Dark Zone, a place where pleasure ends and terror begins. In 1986, it would be changed to Sometimes Inner Space can be more terrifying than outer. But those don't really tell you what the movie would have been about. We were going to be talking to Danny Bilson today about the proposed film and what it was like to have worked with Empire Pictures, but a scheduling conflict at the last minute came up and we were unable to speak with him. The post-apocalyptic zombie film L.A.B.C., would be pitched to film buyers first in late 1986 and then again in mid-1987. Whacked out mutants on a rampage without credit cards, read the tagline, above a mutant holding a torn-out parking meter over their head. The log line under the key art gave us a slightly better clue about the film. Even though most of them were strangely mutated, the people of Los Angeles survived a nuclear bombardment. Now the few unaffected people must fight their way out of the city. To me, it looks like it's an attempt to cash in on the success of the surprise 1984 indie hit Night of the Comet. The poster credits Nan Rankin as the screenwriter and George Kerrigan as the director. But there are no entries for a Nan Rankin or a George Kerrigan on the IMDb. Within Empire's group of ads for the 1983 MyFed Film Festival is Leather Babies, 
The key art for the film shows a young boy in what seems to be hell, with a couple of demon-looking guys jumping their motorcycles over a flaming pit of doom. As the boy stands next to a demon woman wearing white spandex bottoms with thigh-high white boots and a skimpy little bikini top. The tagline tells us that Billy is 10 years old, that Billy is a leader, and that Billy knows the secret. Some guy named James Davidson was supposed to direct the film, which was written by Robert Fisher, one-time writer for Alice and The Paul Lynn Show. The ad lists that the film was in pre-production in October of 1983, and that potential global buyers could see a promo reel of Empire's upcoming slate of films, which included test footage from Leather Babies. But Leather Babies never got made, and it doesn't appear James Davidson ever directed anything before or since. If there's one thing Stuart Gordon really seemed to like to do, was to direct movies based on H.P. Lovecraft stories, and Lurking Fear was another potential adaptation of an H.P. Lovecraft story by Gordon and his screenwriting partner Dennis Paoli, first announced in March of 1988. C. Courtney Joyner, who had written Rennie Harlan's 1988 Empire Prison film, would eventually write and direct a low-budget direct-to-video version of Lurking Fear for Band's Full Moon Pictures in 1994. But Joyner would say in an interview years later that he had never even read Paoli's screenplay before tackling his own adaptation. The second potential team-up between Empire and legendary comic artist Jack Kirby was called Mind Master. One man's incredible projections of things to come would, the ad promised, take us to a heroic new dimension of adventure and excitement. In Mindmaster, Dr. Taylor is a genius scientist working at an inventive think tank called the Institute, where he has created a new kind of robot, which can be controlled by a person's thoughts. But before he can complete his creation, Dr. Taylor has an accident that leaves him debilitated. He finds he must use his creation to save a group of co-workers who are being held hostage by another scientist a religious fanatic who considers Taylor's work to be blasphemous. But since Taylor hasn't fully perfected the robot yet, every time he astrally projects himself into the unit, he becomes more unstable, often leaving him covered in an oozing, discolored mass. Like with Dr. Mortalis, Band would rework Kirby's idea into a new movie at full moon without giving the artist credit. This time, Mindmaster would be turned into Mandroid, a 1993 movie that did not work on any level. The Primevals is quite possibly the longest gestating movie that had most of the footage for its shot, but is still incomplete. In 1968, then 23-year-old budding director and stop-motion animator David Allen began working on a project he entitled Raiders of the Stone Ring. The movie would tell the story of a secret Himalayan valley populated by giant yetis and an ancient race of alien lizard men. Alan had spent nearly a decade 
tinkering with the story and working on test footage to show potential financiers the possibility of the project when he had met Charles Band in the mid-1970s. With Band's help, the film would be the cover subject of the winter 1978 issue of the movie genre magazine Cinefantastique, the first time the magazine had ever covered a movie not even yet made. And Alan would begin production on his dream project later in the year, with the help of future effects masters like Dennis Murin, Ken Ralston, and Phil Tippett. But then the financing fell through and the project was put on hold. Alan would become an in-demand effects artist and stop-motion animator, working on projects as big as Ghostbusters 2, Willow, and Young Sherlock Holmes, and as small as Larry Cohen's Cue the Winged Serpent and The Stuff. Alan would also work on several Empire movies, including The Dungeon Master, Dolls, Eliminators, and Ghoulies 2, but he never gave up on making the primevals. At the 1985 American film market, Band would give the primevals a full-page ad in the trades announcing the film, to be directed by himself and Alan, with a screenplay by Alan and Randall Cook. Band would direct the live-action sequences, while Alan would direct the stop-motion. The tagline asked readers to journey to a hidden valley of incredible splendor and unbelievable terror. A year later, an updated ad for the con film market would change the tagline to A Civilization Lost in Time, Invaded One Million Years Ago, and announced that principal photography would begin that September. The ad would also show that the script had been rewritten by Gregory Wyden and William Judkins. But the movie didn't start shooting in September 1986. In fact, it wouldn't be until the summer of 1994 when Band would shoot the live-action sequences and Allen would begin the process of directing the stop-motion animation sequences a year later. Allen continued to work on the animation for years, but, sadly, just as he was about to complete the animation for the film, he would pass away from cancer at the age of 54 in 1999 it appeared the film would never see the light of day. That is, until Band started an Indiegogo campaign in 2018 to help finance the finishing of the animation. And it appears that the film will maybe, hopefully, be ready for release in 2021, 53 years after Alan started working on it. In a 2018 interview with the Wicked Horror website, Band even mentioned the possibility of giving the movie a proper theatrical release, which frankly would be amazing. Can the world's most beautiful women escape their tormentors, or will they be shackled forever? Asked the tagline for this movie proposed at the 1984 MyFed film market. The key art for shackled is disturbing no matter what era we're talking about. A woman is shackled in chains, her pants torn to barely cover her lower half, as an unbuttoned and torn shirt barely covers her midriff. The credited producer and director for this movie, Robert Amante, is a well-known pseudonym for Charles Band himself, who is listed as the executive producer. That's very strange. 
and it's probably a good thing this one never got made. In 1985, after finishing Reanimator and while prepping From Beyond, director Stuart Gordon was eyeing yet another adaptation of an H.P. Lovecraft story titled The Shadow Over Innsmouth. In Dennis Paoli's adaptation, a young bride, after being kidnapped from her husband on a cruise, is taken to an uncharted island where she and the island's people are transformed into mutant amphibious form. But while there's a number of global film buyers who were willing to accept the weirdness of his first two films, Gordon and Band were unable to secure enough guarantees to start making Innsmouth at that time. In 1991, Gordon would team with Band at Full Moon and try to get the film made again, but they would run into the same roadblocks. But Gordon never gave up on the idea, and finally, in the year 2000, he would be able to get a consortium of Spanish and Galician companies to finance the film. With some changes to the script to account for the change in location and a new title, Dagon, Gordon would start shooting with a Spanish film crew in late 2000. But the film would not be a success in Spain, despite being partially in Spanish, and in the United States the film would be released directly to video. In 1987, Empire would try to get an erotic thriller, Shadows and Whispers, to be directed and written by David Schmoller, made. The key art showed a woman posed suspiciously like Elizabeth McGovern is posed on the one sheet for Curtis Hansen's 1987 erotic thriller The Bedroom Window, looking over a bedroom window where a masked man and woman are in the middle of a passionate embrace. In 1986, Empire promoted a would-be action film called Show No Mercy that would have been directed by Peter Manugian that uses an almost identical-looking island in its key art as an arsenal but without any of the weapons. Instead, there's some kind of military speedboat coming out of a very large hangar-type installation within the island as three guys, one a Don Johnson and Miami Vice wannabe, another a wrestler type without a shirt but wearing his championship belt, and one badass-looking voodoo guy who looks like he might have come out of an unseen Crocodile Dundee Outback adventure, look almost ready for battle. The tagline for the film was, On a mission of vengeance that takes them to the point of no return. Yeah, it's a pretty bad tagline. Another of the potential collaborations between Frank Yablons and Empire announced in 1987 would have been Larry Gelbart's adaptation of the 1976 Broadway farcical play Sly Fox, which was directed by Bonnie and Clyde director Arthur Penn, and was based on English playwright Ben Johnson's 16-0 play Volpone. The play would feature George C. Scott as a very wealthy man who dupes his neighbors in late 19th century San Francisco to believe he is dying to amuse himself by seeing what they'd be willing to do for his inheritance. The play also starred Bob Dishy, Hector Elizondo, Jack Guilford, and Gretchen Weiler. It's unknown if any of the actors from the play would have been in the movie, which was also supposed to be directed by Penn. However, Penn would get the chance to revive the play on Broadway in 2004 with a star-studded cast including René Abergenois, 
Elizabeth Berkeley, Bob Dishy, Richard Dreyfus, Bronson Pinchot, Peter Scolari, and Eric Stoltz. Charles Band really liked oddball titles that stood out, and in the summer of 1987, he gave us one of his worst. Space Sluts in the Slammer was yet another women in prison movie, with the twist being it would take place in space. Beyond the outer limits, they're bound and determined, read the tagline. Wink, wink. As two ladies in barely their space bikinis are ogled over by some kind of space prison guard. And like several other unmade Empire movies of this era, the listed writer and director, Ellis D., has no listing on the IMDb. When our world has gone to hell, theirs is waiting, warned the tagline for this film, first proposed at the March 1987 American film market. The key art for Subterraneans would show a group of little monkey-like creatures carrying an unconscious blonde woman dressed only in a nightgown down a flight of stairs at the end of a long and dark New York City subway tunnel. Although there were no writers or director or cast attached to the film at the time, the ad heralded that it would be going into production in September. And in fact, by the time the October 1987 MyFed film market started, a glossy full-color insert for Empire would note that the production had already started on the film, which was supposed to be the first of three movies about a group of small apes who lived in the New York City subway tunnels. But a November 1987 Los Angeles Times article on Empire director and special effects wizard John Carl Beekler mentions his team were hard at work on creating the creatures for subterraneans. And in an interview with Charles Band in the same newspaper several weeks later, Band insisted that despite the rumors of money problems within the company, subterraneans would soon begin production in Italy once Catacombs and Arena had finished production. In Francesco Borsetti's 2016 book, It Came from the 80s, writer Duke Sandifer notes that he was the writer of Subterraneans, and that Band would remount the production at Full Moon in 1990 under the title Subspecies, which would be completely rewritten from his original screenplay, keeping only the notion of small creatures, and the prefix sub in the title. Sandifer would get no credit for the work he had previously done. As I've mentioned many times over this series, Charles Band really had a way with creating memorable titles. One of my favorites has always been Test Tube Teens from the year 2000. Originally pitched to buyers in 1987 featuring Falcon Crest star Morgan Fairchild and scheduled to begin production in February 1988, the movie would finally get made in 1994 by Full Moon Pictures, featuring Morgan Fairchild. Because you just can't let a good title like that go to waste. Tomb was first pitched in 1986. To be directed by Robert Clark from a screenplay by George Gary, this jungle thriller's key art featured two men with knives fighting in front of a woman tied to a large idol while several natives dressed only in loincloths watch over everyone. 
The tagline was a bit long and a bit confusing. The jungle that surrounds them. The passion that overwhelms them. The ritual that makes them prisoner. Of the tomb. One look at the key art for the proposed 1986 film Volcana, and one might suspect it was just another sword and sorcery non-epic meant to only titillate little boys. A buxomous babe clad only in a bikini and strap-up sandals holds a demon warrior over her head with one hand, while several other demon warriors surround her, while a volcano explodes in the background. How did they sell it? In a time of sorcery, in a land under conquest, in the hands of one woman. But maybe in the hands of writer Sherry Kerrigan, it might have been a different movie. But we'll never know. And then there are several titles that would not even get their own ad, but merely a mention on a page shared with a number of other films. Since I cannot find any information about these movies, I'm just going to name them off with the time frames they were originally pitched. We have something called Combat Zone, which was announced in October of 1986. Headhunter, Maximum Thrust, and Mechanizer, also October 1986. Piranha Women, announced in March 1988. Pleasure Planet, Section 8, Skeleton, and Weapon Shop, all announced in October 1986, and Zombie Hotel, announced March 1988. I hope you've enjoyed this three-part look back at Empire Pictures. We'll be back next week with an all-new episode. We'll talk then. The Film Jerk Podcast was written, produced, narrated, and edited by Edward Havens for Idiosyncratic Entertainment. Thank you again. Good night.